Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Had a bunch of notes for a message, and then during worship I felt God just started to speak, so I grabbed my phone and started writing some stuff down, and so I just want to talk about that a little bit, and I think it kind of ties into maybe last week, and it also ties into what we were talking about this morning. Um, So let's just pray and then see where we go. God, I thank you that that you're here. God, that you're not distant, that we're not talking about some faraway distant being, that, that you're right here with us. And I thank you for that, God. I thank you that as I speak today, Holy Spirit, that you put words in my mouth that find a place in our hearts. I thank you that what I say today is from you, not me. I just ask that our ears would be open to hear and our minds to understand and our hearts to receive. God, that we would be good soil, that our lives would produce fruit. God, that a world that is desperate for you and sometimes doesn't even know it would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I feel like um, Carl was mentioning that, that right now the rate of suicide is, is going up. I feel like suicide is just hu- humanity's way of, say, of calling off the search. You know, because we're all searching for something. We're all looking for something. And we've put our hope in so many things. Like so many times we've thought this will be the answer or that will be the answer. When I get this, then I. When I get that, then I. You know, and we keep putting our hope. Our hope is always deferred because we always think it's that next thing that we're going to discover, we're going to get. It's that next relationship that we'll find or, or it's the next thing that we'll conquer or the next degree that we'll get or the next job that we'll get. And we always think it's going to be something that's going to make us you know, finally feel fulfilled, finally going to fill that void in our lives. And, and I feel like suicide is just man's way of saying, I've looked everywhere, it can't be found, the search is over. And it's just an absolute hopelessness and it's an absolute lie that says there's nothing more that you can discover in this world. Everything leaves you empty and everything leaves you more broken than you were before you found it. Because every time you find something, you think this is it. When it's not him, it leads, to the, it leads to letdown, it leads to disappointment, it leads to heartbreak. And when you feel like you've tried everything, what then? There's just an utter hopelessness that comes. And so people call off the search. If that's all there is to life, you guys, listen, that's why there has to be people who live out the life that Jesus lived so that when people are looking and searching, they see something more than what they've been told. We have to, you guys. I mean, it's like just so heavy on me this morning. Like, we have to live this life. It's our privilege and our joy, but it's also our responsibility. Like, His yoke is easy and His burden's light, but there's a yoke and a burden. Right? Like, it's easy and light because we walk paired with Him. You take a young ox, you take an older strong ox, you yoke them together, it's easy for the young ox, and then he becomes the strong ox someday. And when he gets hooked to that yoke, it's easy and light because of who else is hooked to the yoke with him. But there is a yoke and there is a burden. Like, let's not get so caught up in the, well, I don't have to do, I just be. Being always leads to doing. Always. There's not enough that you can do to become a son of God. To become righteous, to become holy in His sight. But once you become, there's not an end to what you will do. And the why matters. Like the why is so important. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Because you know what? We can look on the outside like we're like, you know, yoked and hooked with Jesus and carrying that burden. And we can look for all the world. Remember what God said about Job? He said, if you consider my servant Job upright and blameless among men. But yet when God confronted Job, Job had to repent. What does that tell us? He wasn't upright and blameless. He held something in his heart that only God could see that he had to repent for. But among men, there was nothing that could be found wrong with him. But in his heart, 
there was pride. There was something Job had to repent from. Otherwise, he had no reason to repent. He had no reason to ask forgiveness. And the why matters. Like, it's cool that Christianity is becoming more involved in social justice issues and relief efforts. That's awesome. But, I was reading a recent study, and it said the reason that most people 20 to 30 years old listed as the reason why they were interested in joining in with social justice and with relief efforts is because they had a desire to be seen as cool and be approved of by the world. And it's sad that we'll do for approval what we won't do for love. And it's awesome that things are happening, but the why matters because that's how you get to the end of life and you say, but didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus looks and says, I never knew you. Because you did them all because you wanted to be approved of and you wanted to be known and you wanted to be cool and you wanted people to, to look at you and approve of you, but I never knew you. And it's awesome that you did those things. But doing those things never led you to the one they were supposed to lead you to. And I never knew you. That's a scary place, right? Because there could be a lot of people. And here's the point. A a, a bunch of Christians running around doing things that look Christ-like, that don't know Him, are no good to anybody beyond the surface and the physical things that they can offer. Because if you don't have Him, you can't give Him because what you have, you give. And I think that's why people can be surrounded by Christians and yet be suicidal. It's because even in a room full of Christians, the people who claim to have the hope of the world inside of them, the hope of glory inside of them, there's a lack of seeing something that could actually change their life. And so they they think, well, I did the Christian thing. Like, check, that's one more off the list. Like, I tried it all, right? I tried drugs, I tried relationships, I tried this, I tried that, I tried perversion, I tried everything, and I even tried the Christian thing, and nothing changed, so there's really nothing left. And they call off the search, and we call it suicide. And it's really just another human being saying, I've come to the end, there was nothing worth living for. That's all suicide is. is a human being saying, I've discovered the end, and along the way, there was nothing worth living for. What if along the way they met you? What if along the way they met Jesus? What if our lives really were transformed to the point that we could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus said, as the Father sends me into the world, so I also send you. And what did he come to do? To display the Father. It's not like an arrogant thing to say. It should be the easiest thing for any Christian to say. If you've seen me, you've seen what he's like. Because it's no longer I who lives, but... Come on, you can finish this. Sentences. But Christ who lives in me. Christ in you is what? Christ in you. Not Christ in heaven. Christ in heaven is the reason that Christ in you can be the hope of glory to the world. But He's seated at the Father's right hand. Sometimes standing. Right? You see Stephen. And he's standing. Why is he standing when Stephen is doing what he's doing? Because I believe he's looking down and he's actually seeing somebody who's introducing the world to Jesus through the way that they live, because even as they pick up stones and grit their teeth, he says, Father, don't hold their sins against them. What's he saying? God, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And Jesus is standing. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open, and Jesus, the Son of Man, is standing. He comes up off his seat, and he stands, and he's looking, and he's cheering Stephen on, because why? Because they're being introduced to Jesus. Because they're seeing what it is to actually be loved beyond what you can do for me, beyond my circumstance, beyond being comfortable, beyond it being easy and convenient or any of those things. They're actually seeing Jesus because somebody in the face of being stoned is looking at them and saying, Father, what does He care about? He doesn't care about Himself. Jesus is seeing that people's lives are going to be impacted because nobody can be loved that way and not have their life impacted. Nobody can be loved the way Jesus loved and not have their life changed. 
Nobody can deny after he's dead. You could deny it all the way up to the moment of death. Like he was putting on an act. He was acting this way because, and you can say all these things, he thought saying that would keep us from actually stoning him because he's not responding in hatred and in anger. Why? Because he's following the example of Jesus. Peter says, now we see that Jesus has left us such a great example who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he was threatened did not utter threats, but kept continually entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So what is he doing? He's following the example that Peter says Jesus left, and he's looking at them, and up until the point of death, up until his head being crushed and him actually dying, they could say, well, you know, I think he's just putting on an act. He just thinks that if he says that, then maybe we won't stone him. All these things. But once he's actually dead, how do you think the people felt who threw the stones? When they realized we just killed somebody. And all he cared about was us. That's like literally laying your life down for another. And I'm not saying that all of us are going to be called to that place of people murdering us and us saying, God, forgive them. But I am saying this, if we would love people the way Jesus loved us, we would find ourselves laying our lives down for other people and people would see their lives being changed because even when they treat you wrong, even when they mistreat you, all you can do is love in return. See, what if someone who was headed for suicide who said there's nothing left in the world met somebody who had something they'd never experienced before? And it wasn't just a head knowledge. It wasn't just, I know about Jesus so I can tell you about Him. It was, I know Jesus so I can show you Him. It says that when they saw the disciples, the Pharisees, when they saw Peter and John, they marveled that they were untrained men, yet they carried a confidence and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, they spent time with Jesus and because they spent time with Jesus, there was something on their lives that made the world notice. They were untrained, it says untrained, uneducated, depending on your translation, men. In other words, they weren't Pharisees. They didn't have the teaching and the training that they had, but they recognized they had something that they didn't, and they had a confidence because they had spent time with Jesus. There should be like a confidence in us when we walk through this world. And not arrogance. What is arrogance? Arrogance is simply confidence that doesn't come from spending time with Jesus. That's it. That's the simplest definition of arrogance. It's confidence that doesn't come from spending time with Him. If we spend time with Him, we'll never fall into arrogance because our confidence will always come from the one we spent time with, not the person we believe that we are because of something else. And so, all that to say, I feel like we do talk about character here a lot. We do value purity, walking in holiness. Yeah, of course it's good. It's Jesus. He's pure and holy. And he said we would be holy as He is holy. That wasn't Him like challenging us. That was Him promising us. We'd be holy as He is holy. Why? Because my life is no longer mine, but I, the life I live, I now live unto Him. It's Christ in me. So we value that stuff, and we value like integrity and character, and we talk about these things because they're important, because a lot of the way the world recognizes that we're not like everybody else is because we're not like everybody else. Legitimately. If we just look like, and act like, and do like, and be like, and talk like, and sound like everybody else, what's different? We've got to be real careful that in the name of relevance, we don't become so relevant to the world that we've lost our sense of who Jesus is. Yeah. I promise you, like someone that claims to be a Christian but lives nothing like Jesus is the most useless thing to the world. Why? Because all you're doing is giving more ammo to the gun that says Christians are no different than anybody else. They think they're better than other people and they're hypocrites. Because I knew a Christian who, fill in the blank with your favorite story about a Christian who claimed to be following Jesus and lived his life nothing like him. But, with that being said, as you walk in levels of purity and holiness 
and character and integrity, one thing can happen really easily. And that is that you can start to notice the lack of it wherever you go and in other people. It's just natural, right? It's like when you, when you buy a car. Before you bought that car, you didn't even notice them on the road. Once you buy the car, you see them everywhere. You're like, holy smokes, 50,000 people bought a car the same day I did. No, it's just that your eyes weren't open to the fact that those things were everywhere because you weren't actually thinking about them, but when they became important to you and when you thought about it, you started to notice it everywhere. Well, when you start walking in levels of character and integrity and, and, and humility and all these things, you can, if you're not careful, get more consumed with seeing the lack of it than seeing the hope of it when you see it missing in people. And you can start to become heavy because everywhere you go, you're burdened and grieved in, in, in the purest way. Like with a good heart, meaning the best and with the best of intentions, you become grievous, grieved and you become heavy and you ha- all you can see is a lack everywhere you go. And a, the, the, the challenge is, as we begin to walk out this life of Jesus, is how do I see what God sees and see what God sees? Because there was a time where God looked at my life and saw the way that I was living, but He didn't let that make up His mind about who I was. He didn't become grieved and heavy. He didn't start mourning and say, woe is me. He saw who I was, but He saw who I was really going to be and become. And He hoped and believed because love hopes all things, believes all things, and God is love. So if love hopes and believes all things, if we're becoming like Him, if we're becoming love, then we have this responsibility that we don't allow ourselves to be moved by what we see or by the lack of what we don't see and let that determine the way that we feel towards and about other people, our country, this world. How many of you guys right now know Christians that are throwing their hands up in the air and are acting like it's the end of the world because of what's going on with the government? How many of you guys... Yeah, the rest of you guys probably aren't on Facebook. I'm not either, but my wife shows me some posts from Facebook, and it's like, holy smokes, we we, we don't trust Jesus. We trust the system. Listen, I'm not against the political system. I think being involved in politics is great, and I think joining the discussion and giving a biblical view of things in love is awesome, and it's actually a good thing for Christians to do. But I don't believe that when we act like our hope rests in the next election, that we do Jesus any justice because what we're saying is we have the same hope as all of you and we're supposed to be the ones that say we have the hope of the world. It was a good word. Now you guys missed your chance. You're too late. I told you that last week. If I have to say something, don't even bother. I, brought, I woke up encouraged. It's okay. I did. I woke up this morning and I just, you know, you like, well, you, maybe you don't, well, you know, this, maybe not in this sense, but I had my notes and it's an awesome message and I'll probably, I can say that because it's not mine, it's his, but I'll probably preach it next week, but I had this sense of like, God, there's something else you want to talk about. And so I was like seeking him this morning. I went off in this office to be by myself this morning rather than back in there where the worship and prayer team are before church because I just felt like, and the whole time I'm in there, and I, nothing, you know, just kind of going over my notes and like, okay, God, this is good, this is good. Oh, I can't wait to preach that. Oh, man, that's awesome. And then all of a sudden in worship, it's like. And this is the first thing I wrote. The very first thing was. The degree that we are able to see a situation and have joy proves the degree of our trust for him. The degree that you can look at something that's wrong and not lose your joy proves the level of trust that you've placed in His goodness and in His promises. People will say, well, yeah, but even Jesus sat on a hill and mourned. He did so that we could actually rejoice. Because He took our mourning and gave us gladness. He turned my mourning into dancing. Listen, in Isaiah, it's talking about the promises of God. The same Isaiah that it talked about, you know, healing and, and forgiveness of sins and all that stuff, right? It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He didn't anoint him to bring news to the afflicted. He, put, he anointed him to bring good news. 
See, anybody can talk about and repeat what's going on in the world. It takes somebody who has faith to look at what's going on in the world and actually still believe there's good news to be spoke. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So Jesus sits on a hill and mourns over the state of the world so that we could sit on a hill and be filled with gladness and joy as we expect what God's going to do. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. That word fainting there actually means like heaviness or crushing weight. Something that would cause you to buckle at the knees. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Do we see that like Jesus came so that we could have something that we couldn't have if Jesus didn't come? And that when we look at the world, we have to look at the world like Jesus actually came, not like he didn't. We mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. So what does our mourning look like? It looks like being grieved for the moment, but being hopeful for the future. It looks like not ignoring what's going on, but also not ignoring the promise. Well, I just am a, I live in, I'm just a realist, okay? But the realest thing I know is Jesus. So you can say what's happening right now and call that being a realist, but don't forget to say what Jesus promised was coming in the name of reality. Otherwise, we live like those who have no hope. What's the difference between us and someone who decides how the world's doing by what they watch on the news? We're supposed to have the good news, not Fox News. Seriously, nothing wrong with watching Fox News. I don't think. I don't know. I don't watch it that much, but I'm just saying there's probably nothing wrong with it as long as that's not what determines the way that you see the world. As long as you get alone with Him and you have a confidence that comes from being with Jesus. See, people should look at our lives and say, I know they know what's going on. It's not like they're uneducated, illiterate people. Like, when I talk to them about what's going on in the world, they actually understand things that are not, you know... They're, they're not, like, unable to understand. They're not living in complete denial. But they have a confidence that I don't have. They have a hope that I don't understand. They have a peace that passes my understanding. Why? Well, if they ask you, you could give them the same answer that the disciples had. Because I've been with Jesus. I woke up this morning and I spent time with him and that shaped the way that I looked at the world, not the time that I spent listening to the news on my way into work. If anything, listening to the news should just encourage us that there's something inside of us the world needs even more. Not discourage us that there's something in the world that's going to get us. I promise, man, we, we, we can't like live like those who have no hope. Otherwise, what we're saying is, is that our hope comes from what we see and not by what we know. And the just will live by... The eyes of the Lord are roaming to and fro, searching the earth, looking for those who have faith. He wants to entrust himself to those whose hearts are fully his. What does your heart being fully his mean? It means that my heart is settled and anchored in him, not in anything else. Hmm. He took heaviness and gave us praise. Like you realize he took your heaviness. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. If you walk around heavy all the time, it's because you haven't received what he wants you to receive so that you could actually have praise even in a season where you look around and see heavy things. If the joy of the Lord is your strength, then there's never a day that you're supposed to live without joy. I just, I'm just so heavy. Okay, well that's, take that to Him and see the promise that completely destroys the lie that you're believing that causes you to live heavy. This world will never change, not through you. People will just never get it, not through you. There's no hope, not in you. 
Well, my, my hope's not in man, it's in Jesus. Well, listen, Jesus actually said that you have the hope of glory inside of you. So you're not putting your hope in me, you're putting your hope in the one who lives inside of me. And that's Jesus. But if I have nothing that offers hope to people, then how can they hope in Jesus when they can't even have hope in the one who claims to know him and sees him? There's, there's got to be something different. It's not okay when people are coming to the end of their lives hopeless and saying, I tried everything. An authentic experience with somebody who follows Jesus will change people's lives. You know, I'm not saying every single person that you encounter is going to fall to their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? But somebody should. What do I have to do to have what you have? Somebody should want what we have. If they were trying to buy it from the disciples, they should at least take it for free from us. This isn't heavy. Like, this is encouraging. If you're heavy, then take the mantle of praise. (laughs) And be excited that this is an opportunity into something, not a pointing out of what you don't have. So, they see disciples and they say, they've been with Jesus. How do they know they've been with Jesus? Because of the confidence they had. How confident are we really in the promises of God? Like, here's an easy litmus test for how confident I am in the promises of God. Am I more encouraged by what he spoke or am I more discouraged by what I've seen? Which one actually influences the way that I live, my countenance, and all those things. Which one influences the way that I speak about the world? What, what he's promised? Because it says, and to, the, to, his, to his government, there will be, to the increase of his government, there will be no end. Means it's ever increasing. That means the rule and reign of Jesus is ever increasing. It doesn't matter what it looks like. See, there's going to be times where like the rain hasn't fallen yet, but you're building a boat. There's going to be times where it's not because of what you've seen, but because of what He spoke that you're doing what you do, even though it looks crazy to the world. You imagine that? We've talked about it before, right? Like Noah. People come into town. Hey, you want to see a crazy guy? He's over there. Come on, let's go. Dude, what's he doing? He's building an ark. For what? It's going to save him when the rain comes. What's rain? Good question. And so all the world, Noah looks crazy because they, have, they haven't heard what Noah's heard. To all the world, your life might look a little crazy because they haven't heard what you've heard. They haven't seen what you've seen. They don't know what you know. In fact, if our lives make sense to people that don't believe in God, something's desperately wrong. Desperately wrong. Jesus was misunderstood everywhere he went. Everywhere. So if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. All these things I'm saying, they're all in your Bible. So do we have a confidence that comes from actually being with Him? Or do we have a confidence in what we know in an intellectual way, and this, like Blake said this morning, that was so perfect that you said that, Blake. It doesn't mean checking our intellectuality at the door. It doesn't mean that we like take our brain and remove it. It just means that we don't let anything that we would know intellectually that would come against what we know through the Word and through spiritually, through what we've sensed. It says that the spiritual things are not discerned by natural man, for he cannot discern them, right? Because they're discerned by the Spirit but the spiritual man discerns all things. In other words, there's a place where we can actually understand everything, the, the, the intellectual side and the spiritual side. And in doing so, we don't deny one to accept the other. Right? If we have to deny one, it's going to be something that exalts itself against what? 
the knowledge of God. That's what spiritual warfare is. It's taking thoughts captive and, and casting down anything that would exalt itself against what we know to be true about the Father. That's it. That's all spiritual warfare is. We make it about like yelling and, and the people that are doing spiritual warfare look like they need deliverance most of the time. Like, how can you deliver someone when you look like you've got a demon? You're shaking worse than the kid in Mark 9. The only thing missing is the foam in the mouth. And sometimes maybe that'll come. I don't know. But I'm saying, like, that's not what spiritual warfare is all about. Jesus didn't jump up and down and make himself look like the kid on the ground. He spoke a simple word because he knew a greater truth. What happened? The demon had to go. It didn't matter how loud some of the disciples got. The disciples may have got loud. It doesn't say what they did, but it says that they tried everything and it couldn't get the demon out. They might have got loud. They might have tried to overyell the thing. They might have tried to out-jump and out-hop and out-maneuver you know, maneuver the thing. and Jumping around and screaming, Come out of him! You know, and it's like the demon's going, if they believed, they would speak something with authority and we would go, but they don't believe. They're trying to put on a bigger show than we are, and all it shows is that they don't actually believe what they're saying. They believe what they're seeing. He... And Jesus comes, and he doesn't even care about what he says. The, the, the thing is throwing the boy into fits and, and tossing him around on the ground. And he turns and has a conversation with the father. The father was probably like, dude, yeah, I would be. Like, if I brought my son to Jesus, he started doing his thing, you know, and the demons started manifesting, and he's flailing around on the ground, and Jesus turns and looks at me and says, how long has he been like that? Like, we could talk about all that stuff after you set him free, Jesus. I'll, I'll sit and give you every detail you want once he's not doing that. But what's Jesus saying? I don't even care about that. I care about you, and I care about him. That? He's so confident. Why? Where did he just come from? Being with the Father. He that abides in me he that abides in me. He that believes the things I do, he'll do. And greater things. And we get caught up arguing about what the greater things are. Let's settle for the things that he did first. Then we can worry about what the greater things are. Right? Like, I mean, we're like, what's the greater things? Well, let's just start with the things that we know. And just start doing those. And then from there, we can start worrying about the greater things. Like, I'm not worried about where my kid's going to college when my kid isn't passing kindergarten. Right. Let's worry about this first, what's in front of us, and then we can start worrying about those things as they come. Like, I don't want to argue about what the greater things are if we're not even seeing the things he did. Right. But see, the enemy always wants to drag it into an argument. Always. It says that when Jesus came down from spending time with the Father, he saw his disciples arguing with the scribes and with the Pharisees. What were they arguing about? They're arguing about why they couldn't cast the demon out. And the disciples are probably saying, we've done it before. We just got back from doing it. We told Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well then, prove it. And there was something about what was happening with the boy. They were more impressed by what they saw than what they knew. We can't be like that, where we're more impressed by what we see than what we know. We don't live by bread alone. He said, turn these stones into bread. What's he saying to Jesus? He's saying, do something in the natural. Take natural things and make a natural thing because that's what makes sense because you're hungry right now. Do something in the natural. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. I don't live by things I can touch and see but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Father. Jesus just came down from spending time with the Father. He knew who he was. He knew the authority that he carried. He didn't have to turn around and out-shout and out-dance and out-maneuver the kid. All he had to do was know who he was and believe that what he said would happen. Come out. There's no record of Jesus jumping up and down and screaming. There's a record of Jesus spending time with the Father coming down full of confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence because He knew who He was. Because He just spent time with the one who made Him who He was. Come out. And instantly the boy went limp. Why? Because when truth speaks, lies leave. Lies are destroyed when truth is spoken, but it has to be spoken in love. And what is speaking in love? We take that to mean like, 
Don't hurt feelings. That's not what Jesus thought. I promise you Jesus was less concerned about hurting people's feelings than we are. That's not to say he was like mean. He was more concerned with them hearing the truth from someone who actually was living it. That's what the truth in love is. It's me speaking truth to you that I'm actually living in my own life. Because truth that I'm not living, I don't really believe. There's no authority on it. None. I can speak the truth, but there's no authority on it. The disciples were speaking the truth. Jesus said to them, I give you authority over demons. All demons. Did he not say that to them? Okay, so I'm just making sure we're all awake and tracking here. You guys are quiet today. Seems like the louder I get, the quieter you get. I'm going to preach at a black church, man. They'll go nuts. They do. They're, they're engaged. Like, you listen to them, man. They, they came, like, ready to receive and ready to speak back. Anyways, this is the truth. I know, it's a cultural thing, right? Well, let's change our culture a little bit, and let's look alive in here at least. Yeah, and we don't need to do this. There's nothing cornier than white people who are two years behind. Nothing. Huh? Yeah, we need to get a culture, right? Instead of adopting one. But no, listen. It's truth. If you try to speak truth that you yourself aren't actually submitted to, there's no authority on it because you don't actually believe it. If you believed it, it would change your life. If you actually believed it, it would change your life. How do you prove that you believe something? It changes you. If I said the roof's about to fall in two minutes, we'd find out who actually believed and who didn't by the way that you acted. Not by the way you sat here and said, well, I mean, I guess in theory it could fall. It's a wooden roof. It's, it's pretty old. I know it had a leak at one point. I don't really understand how those beams hold everything up, and I know that there's some water on that flat part out there. Maybe that's been in a row. No, like you would, if you would, you would, what would prove that you actually believe me is the fact you'd get out of your seat and you'd go outside because you didn't want the roof to collapse on you. If you actually believe something, it'll change the way you live. And people whose lives aren't being changed by truth have no ability to speak the truth in love. Why? Because you're not in love. You ever seen someone that's in love? Hey, you look at them. And you can just tell. They don't, you don't have to like encourage them like, hey, why don't you talk about your girlfriend to me? You have to tell them to shut up. Why? Because they're in love. What? I'll just speak the truth, let it land where it lands, you know? If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that howls is the one that got hit. Right now, the one that's all red and looking at me like, why are you saying I'm in love? It's probably getting close. They may not be there, but they're probably getting close at least. Okay, one more thing. We'll close with this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. The same Paul, Jesus said the same thing, don't worry, don't fear, over and over again. The same Paul that wrote all the other commands of the new covenant, all the other things about the new covenant, the reason that we believe the gospel of being born again, new creation, said, be anxious for nothing. 
That's not like a suggestion or like this ideal that he puts out there like a Twinkie on a treadmill that keeps us running. Like it's an actual command, like be anxious over nothing. And then he says, here's how. Here's how you get over anxiety and being anxious. In everything. In what things? In everything. That means when you turn on the news. That means when you talk to your friends. That means when you go to school. That means when you wake up in the morning. That means when you see something that isn't the way it should be. When you see something that comes against what the Word of God clearly speaks. In everything. By prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. How are you thankful when you're making your request? Because a thankful heart proves that I actually believe that I'll have what I'm asking for. It shows that I actually believe Him and that I'm actually putting faith in what I'm saying because I'm not praying like somebody who's wondering what the outcome might be. I'm actually praying as someone who is convinced of what the outcome will be because I'm convinced in the one that I'm praying to and His ability. That's how you pray with thanksgiving. Even when the giant's still down in the valley, God, I thank you that you've delivered this person into my hand and that you will deliver him into my hand. You delivered me from the lion and the bear. Surely this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different. What's he saying? God, I'm so thankful that I know you and I'm so thankful for who you've proven yourself to be and I'm so thankful that you're trustworthy. And so even though the giant's still yelling in the valley, I already have a thankfulness in my heart because I trust you and I trust the outcome because you've spoke. Like right now, there's a lot of Goliaths in our land shouting in the valley. And he's betting, like he always does, that the army of God will dress up in their battle array and gather on their side and scream their war cry. But when the Goliath doesn't move, when the giant doesn't move, when the legislation doesn't move, when the election doesn't move, that they'll actually get afraid and draw back to their caves where they were before. That's what he's betting. He's been in the, all he has to do is just outlast you, just say, be a little bit louder, a little bit stronger, a little bit bigger. That's all he has to do is not move when you shout, and you'll turn and in fear run back to the cave that you were hiding in for 40 days before. But there's got to be someone who steps up like David does, looks down into the valley, sees the giant still shouting, doesn't deny there's a giant, doesn't say there's no giant down there, doesn't say his spear's not bigger than my torso. The head of his spear doesn't say that his armor bearer is two times the size of me, never mind the giant he bears the armor for. He doesn't deny any of that stuff. All he says is, there's something in the valley that's shouting, but there's someone in heaven who's speaking. And what he's saying is what I believe, not what he's saying. Come down and I will feed you to the birds of the air. What's he saying? He's saying, don't come down here. Don't come down here. Don't come fight me. I'm too big. I'm too strong. You're too little. You're too weak. And if you do come down here, I'll rip you apart and I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the air. That's what he told David. David says what? Surely God will. How does he know before he goes and fights him? See, that's the problem that we have a lot of times is we wait to see the outcome and then we declare what God will or won't do. It doesn't work that way. It takes someone who's actually assured of the outcome to step into the valley and see what God promised come to pass. David didn't say after the battle and cut the giant's head off. He dragged around for three days. Why? I think he wanted every single person that doubted him to physically see him carrying the head of the giant so that they would never again put their faith in the size of someone. They would always put their faith in the covenant they had with God. I really believe that for three, it says three days later when he went to see Saul, he, was, he had the head of the Philistine with him. I know, right? That's gruesome. That's nasty. You know what the truth is? We carry the heads around that we've cut off in the kingdom with us for the rest of our lives so that anybody who's ever put their faith in that thing more than our God can see it and actually be encouraged and think there's a way that I could defeat it too. So that giant that was shouting in your life that seemed like he was unbeatable, that everybody else was terrified of, you just dragged that head around with you and you let everybody who doubted see the head of the one who was screaming in the valley is now dangling behind the hands of a little boy. Why? Because everybody that sees that will never again be afraid when that same giant starts to scream in their life. How does that happen? It happens the same way it happened with the disciples. 
by being with him. How did David get the confidence he got? I was alone watching my father's sheep and God. I was watching my father's sheep and God. A a lion and a bear came and God. Confident. Totally confident. Accused of being arrogant by his brothers. Why? Because he had a confidence. But the proof that it wasn't arrogance was that it came from where he had spent his time. My confidence isn't in me, David's telling him. He's saying, listen, a lion and a bear came and God and God and God. What's he saying? I have a confidence and here's why. God. And the same God that was there is going to be there. I promise because he said he'd never leave me and never forsake me. So if he was there, he's going to be there. All I have to do is be there too. I just have to show up. The yoke is easy. The burden's light. But there's a yoke and a burden. I promise you, the ox that's hooked together in a yoke of, that's burden, the, in a burden that's easy and light still has to walk the field. They still have to show up. They don't stand on the side of the field going, wow, this really is easy and light. Well, of course it is. You're not even doing anything. You've got to actually step into the field and feel the power of the ox that's next to you to understand, whoa, it really is easy and light. Where does it all come from? Every single bit of it. Being with Him. That's it. That's the only place it can come from. Because anything other than that is arrogance and pride. And you'll talk to the demons and they'll speak back and say, we know Him and we know Him. Who are you? What, was they, what were they asking Him? They were saying, we know you by who you are, not by who you know. And you're not that impressive. We know Paul. Why? Because Paul had Christ in him. <laughs> we know Jesus. Why? He's the Son of God. You? You're not that impressive. God, I thank you that, that we can be with you. God, when no one's looking. I thank you, God, that our eyes are more open to your promise than to what we see. That we can never see a problem apart from seeing and hearing your promise. That we, like you, God, can hope and believe all things because our hope and our belief is in you, not in what we've seen or what we've heard or what we haven't seen or what we haven't heard. And God, I pray that when we see a lack, that we love each other enough to speak to each other, but we don't let it cause us to become heavy and burdened down because Jesus, you said that you took our mourning and gave us gladness. You took heaviness and gave us a spirit of dancing. I thank you, God, that we can dance even as we look at something that would have caused us to buckle and come to our knees in the past because all we can hear and see is your promise. And I thank you for that, God. Do you guys just stand to your feet real quick? Just stand to your feet real quick. And let's just, let's just put our hands in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a posture to receive. And I want to read this. And I want you to understand that the same Jesus who came and gave his life on a cross for his blood to cover your sin also did every bit of this. God, I thank you that this is true. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Say that. The of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives. And freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Not, oh God, it's another election year. The favorable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland 
instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. It says to comfort, it says that we are, we are anointed to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Do you know how you give the oil of gladness to somebody instead of mourning? You actually have the oil of gladness. Because what you have, you give. Freely you've received, now freely give. We're coming to the end. I know your arms are getting tired. You're going to go eat after this anyways. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. That means that when I see something that would have brought me to my knees, it brings me to my feet. Because I'm so aware of His promise and I'm so unconcerned by what the demon's doing in the boy. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. No, you know what? Let's personalize that. So I will be called an oak of righteousness. So I will be called an oak of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. God, I thank You that in this beautiful, wonderful, glorious, amazing exchange, You took all that and You gave all that. I thank You that we would be like trees planted deep by the waters, God. That our roots would run down deep. That even in a season of famine, we would not wilt, nor would we cease to bear fruit. Because we're not connected to what we see. We're connected to who you are and what is unseen. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. He's awesome.